0: This is the Ruler podcast, uh, brought to you by Lacquer bicycle insurance powered by the community. And I am delighted to welcome on to this edition a true legend of the sport, three times winner of the Tour de France, uh, twice world champion, still the only American to actually win the Tour de France, uh, Greg LeMond. And even more pleased to say that uh, he's joined by his wife, Cathy. Um, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I go right back to the start to uh, your racing in the States in the 70s, later, yeah. which I guess is when you started. It was, um, it was a very different world back then, wasn't it? And, and uh, I guess that at that time, cycling in the States was very much a niche sport. It was,
1: but it's crazy. I think um, where I grew, up in, I grew up in Los Angeles, moved to Reno, Lake Tahoe area. But when I got into cycling, uh, just the Reno, in the club had about 40, Riders, but what I didn't know is Northern California was the hotbed. And uh, so, out of the United States, my racing when I started was uh, my first race was in Sacramento. Not many people showed up there, but the next day um, was near the Bay Area, And I had 50, 60 juniors or intermediate my age. And so it was very competitive, but it was kind of at that time, if you think about a niche sport, it was cycling, was, had its own little culture. And I uh, had no clue what it was. I mean, I showed up in my first race in a yellow jersey and a yellow bike, had no clue what the Tour de France was, and my friend Kent Gordis and a few other guys were looking at me with disgust, what the heck are you doing with a yellow jersey? Finally, about 11 races into the race, uh, I won my first 11 races, then he, my friend Kent Gordis, who wrote my first book with me, complete book of cycling, he said, you got to take that jersey off, only the Tour de France winner wears it, and I did not know what the Tour de France was at that point, so... And how long did it take you? How long was it before you kind of realized, actually, you were pretty good at this and, you know, that there could be a future in this for you? Well, it was such an exciting period because I'd never, my parents were not real, I mean, I say athletes. We grew up in Los Angeles. My dad, blue collar. My mom, you know, if you watch Grease, the movie, that's my dad and mom. Which Johnson. is quite unusual
0: because I've always thought that cycling in the States was more of a kind of a middle-class uh,
1: college sport. It was, East but one. we, my dad, they got married right out of high school. Then they moved. My dad got, he was actually a gardener, cut lawns and all that, and got into real estate and moved to Lake Tahoe. He had a job offer there. But, so we moved from the Los Angeles area to the Sierra Nevadas, which was a dream thing for me. I mean, So I uh, got into downhill skiing. I was into fly fishing. I was a, my parents did trap shooting. I was a junior state champion at that, at one point, but it's weird. My mom was a fanatic for Olympics and my sister, um, in 73 or 74, got into gymnastics and she was really good state champion, then ended up winning the national championships. But this is a family with no aspirations for sports. We didn't follow any big team sports. And so when I was, but I was into skiing and I wanted to be a freestyle skier and, uh, to get in shape for actually, for my 14th birthday, my parents bought me a five-day training camp in Whistler, uh, Canada, to learn how to do a flip. So I was not downhill ski racing, uh, freestyle skiing, and they told me to get a bike. That would be the best way to get in shape for for cycling. So I came back and usually earned everything I made. Uh, bought, I cut lawns and lifted hay. Um, bought my first bike was a Raleigh Grand Prix and, my dad bought one, and we started riding. We, about six months later, there's no snow, so no skiing. And we met a guy in a bike shop and said, have you ever thought of racing? And said, no. And so we showed up at the Reno Willman, uh, which was the club at the time. And it's like they were talking a foreign language. But when we did this club race, uh, which was the same course of the state championships, I ended up getting second place out of like 40 people. And one of them was a national champion. They all told my dad, I think he might have talent. But I went from not ever competing to my first race I won First race I entered, I won the next race i I won, and I raced and I won my first eleven races, but I was winning prizes and and remember winning a two dollar prize I said, "Oh my gosh, I'm having a blast, I'm making money <laughs> It was crazy, but i knew I, I don't know it was weird i i have to say i was i thought I knew I was pretty good right away, and it's it's kind of weird for me to say that, but it was after my eleventh race I asked permission to ride in another age category, and it's i think back now it was kind of like I could have raced the whole year and won a lot of races, but I wanted to be challenged. And, and it was meeting that kid, Kent Gordas, who told me to get that jersey off, and another guy in Reno, Roland Galsani, they started telling me about Europe. And al- already I started dreaming about that. So I, th- I think I kind of knew I was pretty talented even the first year. And
0: rather than staying and following a sort of amateur and then maybe Olympic route, you did make the decision when you were relatively young to go and be a pro in Europe.
1: Yeah, but it was all wasn't it wasn't haphazard like that you'd think. And so my second year, I was a junior at that point. I won every basically every race, and even then I asked to race in what they call the amateur Olympic level. And even then I was starting to win all the races. And then I, I really started earning understanding about Europe, the Tour de to France, and then the United States. Probably like in England, and Eddie Merckx, Freddie Martins, all the top riders at the time were like gods. And all the Americans really didn't believe that an American ever could compete against him and again my Kent friend Kent Gordas whose dad lived in Geneva Switzerland in 1978 we decided he invited me for two months and uh and I went over there and I was already third place in junior world championships in the team time trial just before I went over there but the biggest change for me was in 1978 I went and we raced two races in Switzerland two races in France and I won two the two races in France two races in Switzerland then I went to Belgium, I won six out of eight races, and then I went to Poland, I crashed, got third, and won a, a third in this three-day three stage race. But I won almost every race I went into, and I logically said, well, Eddie Merckx, you know, they all have to start somewhere, and if I'm as good as these guys right now, why can't I dream of, of winning the Tour? That was the first year I saw the Tour de France in 1978, and from that point on, that was my dream, uh, was a Tour. So it went very fast. Well, it was fun. And I started 76, 77, 78. In 1980, I was on the Olympic team and I won Circuit de la Sarthe, which was a five-day stage race with Ludwig, third place Tour de France winner, Russians, Polish. And that's where I got an offer to race with Cyril G. Martin and Renault team at 18 years old. So that was my dream. And were you married at that time? Because you got married pretty young, didn't you? Well, in 1978, I met my wife for the first time, but 1979, which um, she's a couple of years older than me (laughs) now. So we were just laughing because (laughs) a guy on the national team, two guys where she lived, imagine out of the whole country, two guys were on the national team from her high school. And one of them had a crush on on her good friend, still Greg Dimchen. And um, I heard about her for about two years before I met her. (laughs) So... And then we met, and I realized they weren't a cup; they were just friends, and uh, we fell in love in 1979, really fell in love, it kind of, actually, we got engaged in 79, I'm 18 years old, she's 19, <laughs> but it was kind of like, just, we're committed to being in love, then the next year, I won this race in uh, France, Cirque de la Sarthe, and I had this offer by Guimard to turn pro, and... We are just madly in love and I'm going, I can't move with, to Europe without you. And so I had to go to her dad who was a doctor and her mom's a teacher and asked if I could marry her. Dad said no, first time. <laughs> That's true. And yeah. go off to Europe for an
0: uncertain future as, a, as racing your bicycle.
1: It was kind of weird though, I don't know. I think I'm more well, mature than 18. Crazy. I think I was more, yeah. we're more mature at 18 than I am now. So <laughs> no, I had I don't real know objectives and I was real logical. I think we were.
2: But my, my, my mom decided, actually, which actually turned out to be a good lesson for Greg and me in our lives when our kids have come home and said they're married or getting married or anything. Never, ever going to lose your child. So uh, my mom went along with us getting married. My dad was not happy. and uh, My it, it parents was, were like,
1: absolutely. His parents were like,
2: yeah, go for it. Um, but my dad had said at the time, like, how are you going to live? like bike racing was absolutely nothing. You know, you'll have no education and I had to drop out of university and he just thought this was going to be the worst thing ever. But then he actually came over the next year after Greg turned pro. We were married already like 4 or 5 months and went to Puerto Bay. And then he's like, "Okay. I get it."
0: He got it. Yeah. He
2: got it. And my dad passed away a couple of years ago now, but I mean nobody loved Greg more than my dad did. So yeah, it worked it was, out very well. Yeah, good, they good, were just very nervous about
1: great mother and family and my parents yeah, too. Yeah, were really great. They were amazing. We're lucky. So you both went
0: to um, France in the early eighties, in 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 nineteen eighty, and um, uh, again, that must have been a bit of a culture shock.
1: Well, the best one was in nineteen eighty. So I signed my first contract on on the Champs Elysees the day the Tour de France finished. But I was offered to race for. U.S. Crete, which is a club out of France, and um, believe it or not, I hate not even say this, but in 1970, 1980 as an amateur, ni- 1979 I made $18,000 racing bikes. I got, I was sponsored and prizes. This is a sport is crazy. My sister, if she was on, she was on the national team. If she took a, a pair of shoes, she'd be disqualified. Cycling had this weird, you know, legal. You could make money, and uh, then in 1980, I made $30,000 racing as an amateur. And they were offering, the Rio Escorté was going to offer me 1000 bucks a month in a full-on furnished apartment. And we got there, and nothing was ready. And
2: There was a mattress, a box spring on the floor of an apartment, but nothing else.
1: But I'm just going to say that 1980, so I had this kind of not great experience with the amateur team. so when we signed our contract with Renault, we negotiated an apartment furnished. And they're going, oh, we're a pro team. You know, the Renault, that's an amateur team. And... Your house will be furnished, and we showed up the next year, and I think it took till May. We showed up in January. Furnishing didn't come till May.
2: All we had was a toilet, a hot plate, and a coffee pot. That was it. And we had a, a sofa from Cyril Guimard's garage that it we was good. I slept mean, on. <laughs>
1: and I made $12,000 a year. And I didn't save any money from the years before because I spent it traveling and on my wife. So <laughs> I didn't have any money, but we lived great, and I got to eat well with the team, so... The only one who really suffered was Kathy. No, no, it was good. But presumably, also
0: the, the the whole culture was different because cycling was very different then, wasn't it? And and actually, the idea of um, the the idea of an American coming and racing for a uh, for a French team was a was a bit of a shock as well. I, imagine.
1: I, I really do believe I was blessed because I I had a choice. I Peugeot was a team that was offering me, and I kind of funny I negotiated up so high just to see where they'd go but I chose to go with Cyril Guimard and mainly because of his reputation of finding young talent and you know taking the time to develop them um and I was already aware just because I had a actually had a couple of good friends from Belgium Noel de which was a pro at the time and they were kind of Richard they were kind of saying go with Renaud, and you know Guimard's going to let you kind of build into it so it was really important I met Hino in 1980 that he came over and it was the best thing. I think if I would, I hear sometimes riders going to Belgium and then kind of racing in this ghetto, it would have been, that would have been almost impossible for me. I was, um, I got really fortunate to race with Renault and right away it was within, I raced Perrier Bay that year. Um, I was, you know, kind of groomed (laughs) to be the team's next champion. So it was, it was not as hard as some people, you know. And it helps when you have talent, honestly, because I could see, I know a lot of riders came from the U.S. and they go to Belgium and there's some, at that time, sometimes the race in Belgium was very depressing. It's like it's great for your amateur junior, but if you're trying to turn pro, oof. so I was very lucky, and I had my wife with me. And the first tour you rode was 1984, is that right? Eighty-four. Yes. 84. Yeah. yeah. Eighty-four. You're right. What was that like? Well, it's crazy because 1983, you know, had um, had an injury, so I had an offer opportunity to race it that year, and you know. We decided I wasn't going to race till 84, and I was going to shoot for the victory. And, uh, and I was racing really well in the Dauphiné and decided not to do it because I, the objective was the world championships, and Fignon did it. And we, you realize now, you look back, and Hino was out of it, so Fignon won the tour. And, and I'm, you know, you go back, God, what would have been like? Um, but I was still, you know, he won it. I thought I was going to start that race and win it. And then I got about two days into the race, and I got bronchitis, and I was on antibiotics until all the way till Grenoble so that tour was for me was so difficult because I I was somewhat sick I was actually sick so it almost like traumatized me and I was so lucky just to get third place so in 85 I got in there I was kind of nervous about it's so funny how you can do a race and and be suffer so much the year before that you think it's that much harder but it's it's you know it's interesting it was it was very difficult for me. Um, I was glad I got third place because I didn't think I could. I stayed in about eighth place until I got to a rest day, which was in Grenoble, and I needed those two days. I did a very easy ride and a, a day on a time trial, and I, I, you need two days sometimes to recuperate. Had I not had that, I would. I don't know what I would. I probably wouldn't have finished the race.
0: And um, presumably you you'd ridden the big mountains before, but oh yeah, like the Tour de France is a. Different well, I mean, I I'm so, better, but
1: I said it's so different if you're not healthy. So in the, in the tour, you can get a cold and you're you're out. Um, my first year, I raced. I was 19. I raced the Dauphiné Libéré and um, I was third place. Hino won it. Um, I was right there with the very best in the climb. So in the Tour de l'Avenir the, in '82, I won by 10 minutes. In '83, I won the Dauphiné. And, and so climbing, I was never worried about it. But in '84, it it was so crazy because you've heard about how hard the tour is. It was my first time, and it was hard because I wasn't healthy. Uh, and the next year, I raced it. I was so nervous about it. I finished the race. It was like at the last week, and I'm going, well, it's not that hard. <laughs> it's crazy. When you're good, it's it's not that hard. If you're not good, it's really difficult.
0: And 85, I guess, um, you, you could have won it. And then 86, as everyone remembers, was the big duel with your teammate.
1: <laughs> it, it goes down. It's, it's still a... Um, you know, a very big victory for me because I beat a guy that was really trying to win. But I think 85 was such a, um, um, when I think back about it, sometimes it's too, too kind thinking about, back when I think back to it, um, it did impact me 84. It did impact me because I was real nervous and I had a not a great day in a time trial in 85. We changed bikes and all my rhythm was off so I lost about two and a half minutes. But by the time I got to the last week, I mean, I was so much stronger than Hino and um in fact, I just remembered, like the day after Luzardi Dan, when I was held back, I pushed him physically, pushed him with the obese the next day to keep his his, his lead and me to maintain second, even in spite of being totally screwed the day before. But I never looked at Hino as the one who did it. I looked at um, at Paul Coakley and Bernard Teppe, so I kind of protected my admir- admiration for Hino. And, uh, and it, I don't think it was him; it was the team. But he took advantage of the next year. And I look back, I would have won the tour in 85 with no problem, with four or five minutes, easy on top of them. Um, so, yeah, I think I, you know, I mean, I think I was a lot more talented than, I, <laughs> than even my results showed. And I, you know, I did go against some very tough competition, which is Hino and Finon. It's And I, I said 1990, when they weren't there, it was I said it was like racing with one leg compared to those guys. So it, it is what's crazy in your career, if you have a period where there, you don't have that competitor, it's a different race. So, but I won two races of, of the three against some very ex Tour France winners. Yeah.
0: Um, And I'm not sure what it was like in the States at the time, but certainly that was a period over here, sort of 84, 85, 86, when a lot of people started getting into watching the Tour de France because Channel 4 in this country started um, transmitting add uh, daily programs about the Tour de France um, and this story that was unfolding in front of us yeah the the, the teammates battling for the uh, battling for this for this great prize was extraordinary it was something that we really hadn't seen before was were you aware that there was a kind of similar interest in the states? Uh, I, I think we were saying
1: that England I was when we race, started racing it's like England was so close to the continent but much more related into a kind of separated like the U.S. was and I think it was Sean Kelly, Phil Anderson, Stephen Roche and it was television and I think at least in America it was ABC, it was ABC or NBC that started filming the tour and without that it had gone unheard of but it was an exciting period and I think you see that in England I, I meet people who got into cycling in the 80s and they're still with it and it was exciting because it was like me discovering the Tour de France for the first time and people start to discover and it's, it is a dramatic story I mean it's a Three week soap opera. It's great for the sport that it's it, it happened because if you were even ten years earlier, you wouldn't have had the TV coverage, and it was really where it started growing internationally. But it takes it took foreigners to come in and, and, and create that news too, create that challenge.
0: Well, one of the things that um, you did as a sort of new as an incomer as a as a foreigner was that Kathy sometimes joined you uh, during the race, which was unheard of, I think, in in cycling at that time, wasn't it?
1: Like I said, with Guimard, he was pretty accepting of it. It was a shocker for the other teams, but I think the best story I heard when i went I went did a a Dutch event in two thousand and twelve out at a break, A guy named John Ireland who invited me over. And anyway, so this Dutch uh, wife came up and said, "I want to thank you." And I said, for what? And he said, Well, my husband was doing the Tour de France, and the director was Heine Kuiper. And you know, he, she'd stayed the night with him, and Heine Kuiper went ballistic and it might have been 85 went ballistic said your wife is not allowed here well greg has his wife here why can't can i that's that's not accepted here that i don't care what greg does you can't have uh have your wife here and they're like okay well that day you won the stage and then honey Kuiper said you can have your wife any day you want here <laughs> Haven't come in. But it was crazy. It, but
2: we did follow rules. I mean, Jamard yeah. had rules for us. We didn't. She didn't. It wasn't like was, I came and stayed the, at the hotel. I always stayed at a separate hotel. I only really saw you during the massage. But the difference
1: is everybody who lived in Europe, they would yeah. get done with the race. They'd go home. I mean, riders were living with their parents. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, so it was different. We were we were away from our home. And, and so we were, you know, my wife, you know, to be shoved into a house, even though it's, you know probably her house, she's still away from home, really.
2: And also, you know, you were a dad. You missed your kid. Yeah.
1: But there was this myth. It's crazy, because I always smile at Sean Kelly and Paul Kimmage. but um, And I believe it's true, because Sean Kelly, I invited him to dinner one time, and he he said yes, but then his wife said, no, he can't come. It was, you know, we ate at 738, and he said, oh, no, he's in bed by (laughs) 8. But there was a deal. What's John de DeGrabaldi? No, no sex two weeks before one-day race, no sex four weeks before a big tour, but you raced 110 days a year, so you never had sex. But there was a belief, truly, that having sex or making a, was bad for your performance. And I was always read a, not, a lot, I kind of said, well, no, actually it can boost your testosterone, so it was good for you. <laughs> so, but there was that fear, there was a fear that, you know, it would take energy away from the riders. And there and, were all
0: kinds of myths at the
1: time. Oh, oh can eat ridiculous. ice cream, can't walk. Um, Man, it was like, but I was, I came completely from a different world. I mean, when I when I met Kathy, I raced a race called the Tour um, Red Zinger Classic. And Red Zinger was a 10 day race, and you had the Russians there, and there were pro racers. And I was a junior, I got permission to race that. And I would have won that in 1979, and I was 17, just 18. But I, this is a 10 day race. All the other, you had pro riders, they're basically, yeah, they're pro riders um, going to bed. I was out to movies with Kathy, and we walked around, and I still would have won the race. And so when I went to Europe, and I'm going, you know, you live like a monk. And I'm going, it was so foreign to me. And, you know, I, I kind of rubbed a lot of feathers over there because um, I just didn't buy into kind of, I mean, I was actually very analytical, and I read a lot. And I'm going, this is BS. And I still, I'm that way, too. I And I never hear,
2: Superstitious. Thank no. God. He was never superstitious. So there was never any of that baggage. So never to hang up. You know, yeah, if you're a lot superstitious, of people you're like, superstitious. Oh,
1: like, if I don't do this, I'm not going to win a race. So to me, it was always being in great shape. If I'm in great shape, and I'm, I really believed, if I'm at my best, nobody can beat me. You know, after, after by the time 83, 84, I got to that confidence, especially by 85, 86. After 85, I really felt like... Um, I at my best at my very peak. Um, at least in the tour, nobody's going to beat me. But um, but we were very, I don't know, we were, it was exciting because we were, um, it, I was always an outsider in a way, and it, it's kind of even that way today because it's, um, I didn't, I say I'm a man with no country. I didn't have a team. But even with the American team, I didn't want to race an American team. I really liked the team camaraderie, uh, the team spirit of a European team. And the American teams, even at the time, some, they were, all these individual weird individuals that it was all these personality conflicts and really when you're on a pro team and even you know people are nice people and we all got along and it was a great atmosphere and so it was weird I didn't have I didn't want to be an American team I wasn't French but at the end of, at the end of my career I mean the French like me and I really love being in, and I love racing for a French team there's always this kind of deal that oh we got to race for an Italian team one year so you can speak Italian. But I like being on a French team. I, I do believe, Americans had such this weird attitude. The American tourists like the French, the frogs. And and of, you know, I'm, I know a lot of people different cultures, but I truly believe that the French are fair play. They're if you think of what could have happened to me with going against Hino, I could have been taken out punched, but I wasn't. And so, I I'd really like. The riders, I like the culture. People are respectful. You, you seem know. to honor the Tour de France. They do. They You seem, do. To, you seem to respect the Tour de France as well. Which hasn't the been tour. said. Yeah. I, oh, I th- I think absolutely. That, but if you look at <laughs> that, maybe I don't want to say about right? Italy, yeah. but you have Francesca Moser, who I know Finian was my teammate, and Moser was pushed up every hill, and I mean, and that would never happen in France. It wouldn't matter if it's me going against Finian. You won't have French people pushing Finian up just because he's French. So that's what I really I respect. And I and I do believe, you know, with Bernard Tappy was the one kind of bizarre character that came in cycling. He was very charismatic and, and you know easily can manipulate, you know, even myself. So um, but I had a great career. I love who I raced with and the teams I was on.
0: You're listening to the Ruler Podcast, supported by Lacker, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm Mark Williamson, and I've been a LaCa customer since the start of 2019, so about eight months now.
1: So I was on this new bike and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call, came out and found someone who taken off the headset at the front, they'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. LACA were phenomenal actually. I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support. They seemed keen to help uh, and it was just a remarkably
0: hassle-free experience.
1: I couldn't have been happier with the service despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my uh, my new bike.
0: And that's Laka, L-A-K-A, dot co dot And this is The Ruler Podcast, and I'm with Greg and Cathy LeMond. Let's talk about 1987, um, because, of course, that was the year that you had um, your terrible accident. At the time, I remember um, not realizing quite how bad the accident was because i don't think you know the reports of it at the time didn't sort of seem to stress how bad an accident it was and how seriously you've been hurt was that sort of deliberate in some ways were you yes
1: it 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 was was. yeah but it wasn't it was but yeah honey i I mean there was kind of there was a lot of denial there like i think my parents didn't want to believe that i was that hurt and i just won the tour and started a bike company and there was a lot of confusion at the time. Well, it was
2: very hard in our family because it was such a crisis in our family. Imagine it's the brother-in-law that nearly kills you, um, you know, for the sake of his sister and our brother-in-law. It was kind of like you can't really
1: talk it's, well, about I'm okay. I'm how
2: okay. bad it was. I'm okay. Right? It's kind of they like, needed yeah. to just think it was going to just be fine.
1: And at the same time, though, I would say the trauma surgeon, and remember there's yeah. elective surgery and there's trauma surgery. and If you go into war, that's a trauma surgery. And they look at a person who they're saving their life. That's good enough for them. And that's the way I was treated. You know, you didn't lose your lung. You didn't lose this. You're alive. And that kind of gave me this false sense that I wasn't that damaged or hurt. But I was. I mean, it was, I went from uh, 68 kilos and 4 or 5% body fat to, what did I lose? Uh, 15, 16 kilos, and 19% body fat. So I weighed, I, I lost everything. And um, I could not walk 100 meters eight weeks later. And But there was a lot of chaos. I'm going to say this because there was denial that I was that injured. And there was talk of me racing this course Classic in July. I mean, I could not walk 100 feet in June. And so, but at the same time, I didn't want everybody to know because... I didn't know if I could come back or not but if they knew how injured I would I would never get a team back. In fact, when my dad went over to the, the tour to let's just say when I got shot April 21st, I think it was May 20th, Bernard Teppi sent me this beautiful leather Dear Greg, it's been a great 3 years together, you know, so many good memories but you're fired. Literally <laughs> just I was fired. And so um the idea I'm you know, it was at the time. It was really weird because I'd have to say I was a little down after my first tour. It was really kind of like, and I look at that. I said I broke my hand because after your first victory, yeah, yeah. yeah. this was like it was anticlimactic. But it was I wanted against Hino and, the, and people telling you know French saying I he gave it to me and it was, but I think it was down because the deception of it was like being deceived by your brother, a family member who like basically screwed you. And I was, I was really, I didn't. At one point, I go, screw it. I didn't even care to race again. That's what I started feeling like at the end of '86 into, into January. And I was fortunate; I went back to Europe and I started racing. I'm going, okay, gosh, what am I thinking? I mean, you think if isolate yourself for too many, too many months of thinking about all the downside, and then you go, what am I doing? I love it, but I wasn't on top of my game, and you know, I never, I tried to stay out of crashes, and when. I was struggling a little bit in the race in Torino, and I was just in the middle of the Peloton, gotten caught in a crash, and broke my hand. So, um, but when I got shot, at that point, you kind of go, there was a period of three months, I didn't care if I raced again. I just didn't know what was going to happen.
2: Well, you wouldn't even let us talk about it.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I, I mean, when, at, when Greg was, well, he was in intensive care, but he said to me, you know, don't have one person talk about cycling. I mean, first, I got to think about staying alive. We are not talking about cycling yet.
1: It took about July. Yeah. Even then, it was kind of like it, my dad went over and, you know, now we have no team, and my dad went over. and So when I got shot, I had letters like, now you know what an animal feels like to get shot. And then I remember a Belgian paper going, well, the guy who eats pizza and hamburgers and ice cream got what he deserved. So, and then the, the irony is like in 86, part of it was he know, but... Um, I learned. I started playing golf like in '85, and I would play golf on the rest days after like a, a stage race, and I actually it helped me recover. It was incredible for my mind. But then a the rumor was that I was playing golf during the Tour de France, and it drove people crazy. And I'm going, shit! If I'm that good and I can play golf and still win the Tour, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't refute that. So, um, and I would. I would kind of. I hated people with these myths. So, uh, I'm not a fan of McDonald's, but they kept saying, oh. The truth is when you're racing the tour, you can eat whatever you want, basically. It's fuel. So, 86, I have somebody give me a Musette with a McDonald's uh, Big Mac. I ate it in a race. And the riders are going crazy. So when I got shot, it was like, oh, you deserved it. And it hurt me because at that point, people made, they kept looking at, so when I got shot, I lost all my muscle mass. I lost, I went down to 19% hematocrit. I'm talking more than half my blood volume and my dad went over and the only two teams that would talk to me was Carrera and PDM and but my dad said hey they don't think you're serious nobody wants you that's what he told me and I'm like and I just started riding that week but it's
2: crazy you just won the tour yeah you're. you're, Yeah.
1: but it was that deal. you weren't serious I shouldn't have been shot I shouldn't have been hunting but they don't realize I was going to be out for six months I was not going to be and it was a freak invitation by my uncle who had a farm with turkeys I grew up trap shooting and uh, some bird hunting but it wasn't a big hunter It was pure chance but my dad was over and the feedback was you know i wasn't serious about the sport so he's while he's over there i just start riding and i have maybe two days of riding in and my wife and i are with some our belgian neighbors in san francisco and we go to chinatown and we have this chinese meal and all of a sudden i've had absolutely the worst stomach ache and we think we have food poisoning and everybody's throwing their food up at the next gas station. And, and I make it over the Bay Area like 15 minutes away. We have to go to the emergency room. It is so painful. And they're like, nothing wrong with you. And we're driving back to Sacramento another probably an hour. And I have to say, I asked my wife to kill me. I just said, I've got to jump out of the car. I had so much pain. Well, I end up having an intestinal block. So when you have a, a, a surgery in the front, I had, I've had about a 12-inch incision right here. But you have scar tissue there, and the intestine could get stuck onto it. And that's what happened. It got twisted. Now, you can die from that. And it was absolutely the most painful thing. And we went back to the same trauma surgery, trauma center in Sacramento. And the surgeon's like, you know, I've got medication in there. And finally, kind of like some pain relief. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I had a guy with surgery like you last year. And we had tw- he had 22 intestinal blocks. He had 22 surgeries. He said, oh, yeah, it's very common. You know, this might work. He said, now I have a new surgery technique that we think it will prevent that. And I'm going, oh my gosh, if this gets out that I had an intestinal block, I'm done racing. I am done. So I said to him without lying, I said, you know what? I'm already in here. Can you take my appendix out? Sure. Why not? Okay. So I, I get out the next, my dad finds out we're in the, in, it's like the worst news because he's right in the middle of negotiating it. And we go, okay, well, I had my, I had an emergency, uh, appendectomy. appendectomy. So I said, you know, I never mentioned intestinal block. I said, I had my appendix. I didn't lie, but, but that's how I got back. And I got, I, I got, I signed with PDM. It was the t- choice of the two. And I liked cause they spoke English, but the I was, I had to race in September, uh, or they wouldn't take me. So I showed up in September 3rd to a criterium that I made $3,000. I showed up, um, I made it not even half a mile, half half the lap, and I got dropped. And I pretended I had a flat tire. But now I look back at it and I'm going, oh my gosh, by the time October I got 39th place in Tour of Ireland, which is shocking. I went for nothing to 39th place. But that started this horrible cycle of of not building the base of training and really building up and it became this horrible do-or-die every time I raced. So I had some help, some hope at the end of 87. Then in 1988, I um, started with PDM, and I had a crash like in March where I had a tendonitis, which I couldn't pedal. So I was taking five days on, riding five days off, riding two days. And of course, I wasn't riding well. Of course, they blamed it on me not being serious. Blamed it on eating a hamburger, or eating a pizza, or walking. And it became really dysfunctional. They, they literally threw my right leg into a cast in May. They didn't believe I wasn't taking care of myself. And I finally called an uh, orthopedic surgeon in the US and he said, what? That's crazy, you don't lock your leg in for tendonitis. So I was in the cast for like three, three, four weeks. Went back in, I think first week of July, finally had surgery on it. So I missed that whole period. And um, again, uh, 88 was really interesting. I I always look back, I'm really blessed, honestly, because, because in 88, i say I could have been very vulnerable. So we're back in, we're now living in Minnesota and I just had surgery. And um, I have this guy named Manfred Creaky, the owner of of PDM. Calls me the day after Lape And Tunis and Rooks just took first and second. And he was so excited, he said, Greg, you're gonna win more tours than ever. And I'm like, yeah, we got first and second. We have the formula, we have it. And we're just kind of going, hmm, that sounds good. Wow, good. Two days later, Denise was positive and um, and I just my, my wife and I were like oh my gosh that, that accent keeping me out I mean and I saw how they them I saw how they seduced riders oh you have low testosterone here's some testosterone yeah, that's what oh they did they did and it sounded medical it sounded like you're taking care of the riders and I go oh my gosh I could have been because when they signed me in 87 they said and we looked at it going I could get it because they said you need medical care you need this is you've been really injured. You need a program, and we heard program, we're thinking, yeah, a training program. No, a doping program, this is what we found out. And so in July of that year, and I was going back in August, I decided, Kath, I said, there is nothing worth it. I've won one tour, I'll never, I'd rather never win a tour again. And I came back and I um, told the team that they had to fire whoever gave to nice. Had to fire him, fired fire whoever it was who gave Gave him the drugs, and um, oh, that was over for me. I was they done. Refused. They refused. No, they, it was done. But I yeah. then, then they started spreading rumors that I was, again, not serious. And my contract that year, in '88, was two hundred thousand dollars, and the next year went to four hundred thousand dollars. And it was the, the agreement was it's going to take me time to build up. And um, and I think by the end of August, Harry Johnson started spreading rumors that how Derek Greg telling all the writers. Look how bad he's raced. He's not even he's not a pro, and he's asking for more money. No, it's my contract requires that. So mid, I actually started saying, fuck, I'm not going to, I'm not even, This. I don't want to be with this team. And I remember going, this is the truth. I, I'm remembering this. And this kind of goes back to the VO2 max. And I, I, um, I had a secret test or training uh, with a team called Fagor. And I was trying to find another team to leave PDM. And I uh, went down to Fagor. I think it was in Poe or something like that. And I had a DVO2 max test. Now, I hadn't ridden at all. And I had a eight, 79 VO2 max, which I've just re- referenced that to another American who had that. And this is that's at the Tour de France level. And they just, they said to me, and they could see that my right lung had not fully expanded because I had, a r- right right lung had collapsed. So I, I never did come back. And, like, my right lung was always a little bit smaller after I got shot. And they said, they, they said, you know, I'm never coming back. So that was a no. So I got rejected by that team, and uh, but it was intolerable for me to with PDM. And I could say this. I always go back to let's say Armstrong and people going. I got a New York Times article in 1980, no, L.A. Times article in 1989. My agent saying I left PDM because of doping, because of what was happening, and I left that year in mid. End, end of September, I called my friend Johan Lamberts, who was a Dutch rider, was on my team in La Vie Claire. He's racing for ADR. And I said, "Please, can you get me a, a ride there?" And uh, he called the boss, and I got a ride. I got, I, I, we walked away from the contract with PDM. And well, I'm going to say this: the best part was PDM got rid of Delgado in '87. He, they, he had, won the tour. The he won the tour, tour. in '88, 80, and then PDM. You know, we separated, and um, and I ended up uh, winning 1989. So it was a good, good year. But it was, it was. Um, it was a really rough period there because it was, you're, you had no security. And even with 89, I got in there and I, they agreed to all these, this contract, but uh, never got paid till I didn't really get paid. I paid, got part of my salary, but it was good because I didn't have the pressure that uh, I might've had had I been even on PDM. So I was lucky, real lucky.
0: I could listen to your stories uh, for, the whole, um, for the whole day. <laughs> Well, um, I, know I, I, know to to, I know that you've got to. I know that you've got to go on. But thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, actually, I talk too much. No, not at all. Yeah, no. uh, looking back, what 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 are you proudest of of having achieved in in your cycling career?
1: I guess I'm. Pr- I, I guess I. I think I did a career that was correct, and I didn't compromise myself. Which, um, it's very easy to do when you're racing because I like said with PDM, I could have been so vulnerable. And I don't judge. Believe it or not, I don't judge people. I don't. I don't judge a rider that he was even doping in the 90s, because they get seduced into it. But I was at least good enough to know that I didn't have to do it. And I'm proud that I was strong enough psychologically. But it was also my marriage. We agreed. There was an American writer my first year, a guy named Eric Jonathan Boyer, and my wife and his well, wife. We had a, to...
2: we, I don't mean to interrupt, but we had a really great start to Greg's career, because... The very first day of the team presentation in Paris, when Greg joined Renault, that evening of the presentation, we came back to the hotel, and the wives sit on one side of the restaurant, and the, the riders are in another room. And um, an American wife, Jonathan Boyer's wife, said to me, well, now that Greg's a pro, he's going to have to start doping. And I said, oh, no. No, he's really good. We're not going to do that. And but at the
1: time, we she, didn't know what I really... I had no clue about the dopamine culture and so no. I. when no. I saw Ryder drinking Coca-Cola, I was like devastated. So we're this naive American yeah. couple, and then we get that's the first thing we hear. But we was, made our it, decision it was we'll the never best do that.
2: thing. So it was a really great thing because she got really upset at how stupid I was. And uh, Greg and Cyril Guimard and Jonathan Boyer came over and they were like, "What's going on here?" And that helped us so much because Cyril knew. Greg had made up his mind. Don't even talk about it. And Greg and I made an agreement. If we go home with nothing, it's better to go home with nothing. Well, I said that just, story
1: about PDM because it's something yeah. I forget about. And that would have been the year I could have been vulnerable. And then you hear somebody's you know, doing incredibly well. But once i won the Tour friends, I said, you know, you can't ever get back your reputation. And you're done. I don't care. If I look back now, I'm going, okay, even today... if if I got a t- twenty points taken away, oh. everything I did would have been thrown away. Anything I achieved before that would have been thrown away. I'd have been discredited completely. And I just I I do think, and I, I know that most writers, I mean, will never believe, you know, if I did or didn't. Um, but I'm that's what I'm really proudest about. Yeah. Kind of, but I was lucky too. I'm, I'm very realistic to go. I was not 19 years old in 1992 when. If you were on an EPO, you're screwed. You're out of the race. So I'm also realistic. That's why it's hard. People go, how can I talk to people who are maybe positive? There's very few riders that I think are bad people. They get it's a bad situation. And I always look at it, it's really the culture of the it starts at the top. It's corrupt up here. It's the coach. It's the now imagine if they were plea bargaining and all those people who are doing that. I said Ferrari's still training people. Dr. Mabuz, who's doping riders in the early 70s, were doping in the in 2007. So riders don't realize they're young kids. They're just like rats. They're in a, And and all the other people, it's, you know, they're still there. And so, and so unfortunately, a lot of riders aren't, they don't have that. Part of it is our, we had a strong family background. I mean, my parents were very, like, there was, we had this chariots of fire deal. There was no compromise. There was, I never thought of ever would I cheat for anything that I got and I'm talking that was just ground into my family I mean even I mean I saw I, so I won him, Bruno Cornier he couldn't believe it but I the team he ended up being a turn, a teammate of mine but he uh, took the wrong turn in the 85 or 86 tour, tour of course classic and I won the, I was second place and I refused to take that victory because this guy had three minutes on me and he said that would have never happened so I wanted to win races on my own. I didn't want it to be ever a compromise or somehow I cheated to do it. But anyways, that's my story. I don't know. It's a brilliant
0: story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Greg LeMond and thank you, LeMond, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks.
2: Thank you.